Welcome to this Vetfolio podcast brought to you by DECRA. We're pleased that you've decided to join us as we explore the topic of diagnosis of Addison's disease with our guest speaker, Dr. Patty Latham. Please note, the information provided in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you in your practice. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vetfolio or its sponsors. Now let's dive into the session with Dr. Latham. Howdy, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast over the diagnosis of Addison's disease. My name is Patty Lathan, and I'm coming to you from Mississippi State University, where it's nice and sunny outside today, but not quite too hot. We'll give that a... So today we're going to be talking about, like I said, the diagnosis of Addison's disease. In particular, we're going to start with the hints on initial blood work that should raise your suspicion of Addison's. Then we'll talk about specific testing, such as the baseline cortisol, ACTH stimulation tests, and endogenous ACTH Then I'm going to be talking about a couple of studies about a diagnostic that might be useful in the future, but then I'll discuss why it's not quite ready for us to use clinically at this point. So I wanted to start off just by giving an overview of a few things that we might notice on initial blood work in an animal that might have hypoadrenocorticism. I think the most common thing everybody thinks about is hyperkalemia and hyponatremia. And certainly, those two things together, there's not that many differential diagnoses for them. Now, I do want to note, contrary to what people believe, in order to have an animal with Addison's, you only need hyponatremia or hyperkalemia. You don't necessarily have to have both of them at the same time. If one or the other is present, then I have an increased suspicion of Addison's in that animal. Now, the other thing I want to mention is a lot of people, you know, there's this talk about atypical Addison's, which I'm going to have a podcast about as well. But atypical Addison's, keep in mind, refers to an animal with clinical signs of cortisol deficiency, but with electrolyte concentration within reference range. So if an animal has atypical Addison's, then it has signs of cortisol deficiency only and both potassium and the sodium are normal in that situation. The other thing that's really common in animals that we diagnose with hypoadrenocorticism is azotemia. The creatinine and BUN concentrations, these guys can be pretty high to the point where a lot of people, when they see hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, and the magnitude of azotemia some of these animals have, they're very suspicious for acute renal failure. On top of that, these animals with Addison's usually have a specific gravity of less than 1030, and they're often isosthenuric. Therefore, this understandably leads people to believe the dog has acute renal failure, and in some cases they do. Now, there are some important things to look at in order to differentiate Addison's from acute renal failure. Animals with acute renal failure that have hyperkalemia and hyponatremia should have minimal to no urine output, so they're either oliuric or anuric. So if you have a patient that presents with hyperkalemia and hyponatremia, but they have a large amount of urine output, otherwise polyuria, then they're extremely unlikely to actually have acute renal failure. I'd put them into the more likely to have Addison's category. Now that said, some animals with Addison's on presentation, because they're so dehydrated and hypovolemic, might not have a large amount of urine present in their bladder at presentation. However, after you fluid resuscitate these guys, they do produce a large amount of urine, and at which point we go, okay, well, they're more likely to be Addisonian. The other way to differentiate Addison's acute renal failure 
is that animals with acute renal failure don't generally respond all that well after initial fluid resuscitation, whereas Addisonians, they can be quite responsive to that initial fluid bolus. And within the first few hours following resuscitation, a lot of times they're feeling much, much better. The first Addisonian crisis I diagnosed and treated, his name was Moose, and this was Back my first year out of vet school, he presented. Actually, the owner had to help carry him to the back, put him on some IV fluids. And again, this was in the middle of the night in a small vet practice. We put him on the floor next to the treatment table. He was a large dog and connected him to the fluids. And we had resuscitated him and just still giving fluid and watching him. And a couple hours after resuscitation, the dog stood up and tried to drag his fluid pole into the exam room. So a lot of times Addisonians don't respond that well, whereas your acute renal failures don't generally respond like that. So, again, my point here is that when you have an animal with hyperkalemia and hyponatremia and concurrent azotemia, please keep Addison's in mind as a differential. It's really important because animals with hypoadrenocorticism generally have a really good prognosis as long as they're diagnosed and treated appropriately whereas animals with acute renal failure have about a 50% survival rate. And clearly when you're talking to owners and you give them a potentially poor prognosis for acute renal failure, they're less likely to continue treating, especially to put out the money on a risky outcome, whereas when you tell them, oh, I think there's a good chance it's Addison's and this is treatable, although it's going to cost us some money down the road, people are a lot more willing to continue treatment. So please keep Addison's on the rule-out list for these any of these animals that are hyperhemolemic and hyponatremic that you suspect with acute renal failure, especially if they have chronic signs of gastrointestinal upset and such. So in addition to the electrolyte abnormalities and azotemia, one other thing I just wanted to mention about animals with Addison's is a lot of times, you know, we talk about them having a lack of a stress leukogram. So if you remember, a stress leukogram occurs in an animal that's stressed out, due to the cortisol influence, that will cause an increase in neutrophil concentration and a decrease in lymphocytes, so neutrophilia and lymphopenia. However, in a dog with Addison's disease, they don't obviously have that cortisol response available, so they shouldn't really have a stress leukogram. So most of these patients have lymphocyte concentrations that are not decreased, and often they don't have an increased neutrophil count either. In fact, there was a study a few years ago out of Penn that showed that if an animal's lymphocyte count was less than 750 per microliter, then it was very unlikely that that dog actually had hypoadrenocorticism. So those are kind of the big things to look at on a serum chemistry and CBC when we're looking for the diagnosis of Addison's, and hopefully everybody can remember those so that we don't miss these guys. Now, of course, once we get the initial indication that, hey, this animal might have Addison's, we need to go further into diagnosing the Addison's more specifically. So there are a few tests that we have to diagnose Addison's. The only way that we can definitively diagnose hypoadrenocorticism is by doing an ACTH stimulation test. However, there's another test that we use to rule out hypoadrenocorticism, which is the baseline cortisol concentration. The concept behind using a baseline cortisol concentration in dogs with suspected hypotrenocorticism is that in normal dogs, the ACTH concentration and therefore the cortisol concentration varies considerably throughout the day. So although maybe it's usually above 5 micrograms per deciliter, though, 
It's sometimes higher, and sometimes it's less than 2 micrograms per deciliter, even in a normal dog. In an Addisonian, however, even if their ACTH concentration is high all day, their poor little adrenal cortex can't make any cortisol at all, so their cortisol concentration should be less than 2 all day. So what we do when we're measuring a baseline cortisol is we'll take a single sample, we'll run a cortisol on it, and then if the baseline cortisol is greater than around 2, sometimes I'll use a 3 as a cutoff just to be sure, then I'll say these animals absolutely do not have Addison's disease because an Addisonian dog cannot make cortisol at all, and if it's above 3, so say it's around 5, 6, 7, 12, whatever, then the animal can't have hypoadrenocorticism. And there we go right there with one simple little blood test, we've ruled out hypoadrenocorticism. However, if the animal does come back and the baseline cortisol is less than 2, since normal dogs can also have a cortisol concentration less than 2 throughout the day just due to episodic secretion of cortisol, then we have to do a full ACTH stimulation test. Therefore, again, I love baseline cortisols to rule out Addison's in animals that are stable at the time. I don't use baseline cortisols in animals that are more critical, especially if they have electrolyte abnormalities, because of the fact that, A, I have a much higher suspicion of hypodrenocorticism, and I don't really want to waste the time for diagnosis. So in my world, honestly, I can get a cortisol concentration back in a couple hours. In the real world, where I was in private practice, it's going to take me a day or two to get a cortisol concentration back. Therefore, if the animal's not stable or it's an acute presentation uh, or I have a really high suspicion of Addison's, I'm just going to go ahead and do an ACTH simulation test. But if it's a chronic dog then and the animal's stable, particularly if I suspect atypical Addison's, then I'll run a baseline cortisol to rule out atypical Addison's. And I'll tell you, we do a lot of these here at the vet school because of how many GI dogs come in, and it's amazing how much money we save those owners by not having to do a full ACTH stimulation test. So leading into the next subject, which is ACTH stimulation testing. As I mentioned, right now, ACTH stimulation test is the only clinically available test that provides definitive diagnosis of hypoadrenocorticism. Of course, the concept is that if you have a normal dog and their adrenal cortex is functioning properly and can make cortisol, that if we give them a large quantity of ACTH, otherwise known as a butt load, then any self-respecting adrenal cortex is going to respond to that ACTH and make some cortisol. So if we give the ACTH and we measure cortisol concentration an hour later, then a normal dog should produce a lot of cortisol. However, in an animal with Addison's disease where their adrenal cortex is no longer producing cortisol at all, then when we give them the ACTH, even though it's a ton of it, or at least relatively a ton of it compared to what's physiologically released generally, then these animals won't be able to release any cortisol. So we measure the cortisol concentration one hour later, then the cortisol concentration is still less than two. So the protocol for an ACTH simulation test, as I alluded to already, is that we take a baseline cortisol sample, we then give a formulation of ACTH, and then we measure the post-stimulation cortisol concentration one hour after administration. Now, if you're going to use a gel, which I don't recommend, the compounded gels for diagnosis of Addison's because they're less consistent and you have to give them IM, and if you have an animal that's essentially dehydrated and hypovolemic, then giving an IM 
substance is a little bit less reliable than giving an IV because you don't know how well it's absorbed. And also, the gels tend to have less consistent results. So again, I prefer using the synthetic ACTH, which in the United States is cosentropin across the ocean. It's tetracosactrin. So if we give synthetic ACTH, then we take a one-hour post-ACTH sample. If for some reason synthetic ACTH is not available, which in some places it's only available sometimes, then you can use the compounded gel formulations. But again, I think that it's a lot less consistent than the synthetic formulation. If you use the gel formulation, then the studies have shown that some of the compounded formulations have a peak cortisol one hour after you give them, and other formulations have a cortisol peak two hours after you give it. So you take a pre-sample, you give the compounded gel, and then you take a post-sample at one hour and two hours post-administration, and you use the highest number when you're looking for diagnosis of Addison's. So generally my cutoff for the diagnosis of Addison's disease is two micrograms per deciliter. So if it's above two micrograms per deciliter, then to me that rules out hypoadrenocortisism. If you use the gel and one of the samples is 1.7 and one of the samples is four, then that to me says, okay, well, obviously a dog with Addison's can't make any cortisol, so I don't think that dog actually has hypoadrenocortisism. When we do an ACTH stimulation test, we have to keep in mind that in the end, we're measuring cortisol concentration. So the cortisol assay that we use has some cross-reactivity with other glucocorticoids, particularly prednisone. Now, dexamethasone and triamcinolone do not cross-react with the cortisol assay. So if you have a dog in crisis and you really need to give a glucocorticoid prior to doing an ACTH stimulation test, then it's perfectly fine to go ahead and give dexamethasone during the crisis, and that's my glucocorticoid of choice in these situations. Now, there are some patients, of course, that might have gotten pred a day or two before they come present to us, and when we do the ACTH stimulation test in them, we need to make sure that we wait at least 12 to 24 hours prior to doing the test because PRED will cross-react with the assay and it will cause a falsely increased number. So make sure that if you use a glucocorticoid prior to doing an ACTH stimulation test, that you use one that does not cross-react with the assay, or you wait 12 to 24 hours after giving prednisone. My glucocorticoid of choice for this situation is dexamethasone. However, triamcinolone is fine as well. Now, as I alluded to already, for me, less than two micrograms per deciliter is the cutoff number for diagnosis of hypoadrenocorticism. If the number is greater than two, then I generally think the dog does not have Addison's disease. In my experience, most of the dogs that have a post-cortisol concentration between, say, two and five, if you ask the owners over and over, then they might admit to giving the dog a steroid over the last month at some point. Some of them will give what I call self-medication, such as that medication for the ear infection that you gave them two or three years ago that they've been giving for the last few weeks. But GDOC, I didn't think that was an actual medication. It was just some eardrops. So make sure they haven't been giving that. There are some people out there that kind of talk about, well, maybe some of our Addisonians could have a post-cortisol between two and five. And honestly, right now, I haven't seen one. I think that there have been a few diagnosed 
and reported in the literature with post-cortisol concentrations of up to about three, and I would believe those. But generally, my recommendation would be if you've got one with a post-stem cortisol between two and five, I'd talk to an internist prior to diagnosing them with hypoadrenocorticism. I think typically those are found to have something else. The other thing that I want to address is the reference range that a lot of laboratories have on the sheet where they give you the cortisol concentration. I generally tell people that for the diagnosis of Addison's or Cushing, don't pay attention to that reference range at all because it confuses people. So if the reference range says that normal post-stem cortisol is 7 to 15, and I'm making that up, but say that they say that, then people think, oh, well, if it stems only 6, then it's Addison's. And again, as I mentioned, that's not correct. I think that might be a little less than normal, but I wouldn't get too worried about that. For me, a diagnosis of Addison's requires a post-stem cortisol of less than 2, and in very rare situations between 2 and 3. Moving back to the protocol of how to do the ACTH stimulation test, when I use cosentropin or synthetic ACTH, the dose I use is 5 micrograms per kilogram, and we showed a few years ago that this dose is adequate to differentiate dogged with Addison's from normal dogs and dogged with other non-adrenal illness. However, when I say 5 micrograms per kilogram, you don't ever need to use more than 250 micrograms per dog. So no dog, including Great Danes or St. Bernard's, needs to get more than 250 micrograms per dog. That said, if you want to give a chihuahua 250 micrograms of cosentropin, it's not going to hurt the dog. It's just going to spend a lot of money because those little vials of cosentropin are about $100 a vial for 250 micrograms. Because of this, people have been looking at ways to try and conserve costs in the diagnosis of Addison's. And one way people have come up with is to store aliquots of cosentropin in the freezer. Now, there was one study that showed that if you stored cosentropin in plastic syringes for up to six months in a negative 20 degrees Celsius freezer, then that cosentropin stays intact for that six months, and that's perfectly fine. Now, you might be saying to yourself, huh, who has a negative 20 degree Celsius freezer? And we do, but for research reasons, and I realize that most people don't. There hadn't been a study looking at regular freezers yet. However, anecdotally, we found that, or people have told us that they have used zero degree freezers and not had a problem with keeping the cosentropin in them for up to six months. Now, make sure that if you use this protocol, that you don't use a frost-free freezer because there are freeze-thaw cycles in frost-free freezers that will freeze the ACTH and then they'll thaw the ACTH and then they'll freeze it again. And we don't know what this constant freezing and re-thawing and refreezing does to the poor little ACTH molecule. So don't use a frost-free freezer to do this. Now how I generally do this is I will reconstitute the bottle of cosentropin with saline or whatever the bottle tells us to reconstitute it with, and that's a mil of it. And then I'll pull it up into 0.2 mil aliquots into several plastic syringes. And that will be 0.2 mils of that will be 50 micrograms, which is enough for an ACTH simulation test for a 10 kg dog. So then I'll put them into the freezer and I'll pull them out as needed. Now, if you have a 15 kg dog, I pull out two of my little syringes, and then I've got 100 micrograms, which is more than I need, but I just go ahead and thaw them both and put them together in one syringe and use that for the stem test. It's important that we use plastic syringes and not glass syringes 
because of the fact that cosentropin and ACTH bind to glass. Okay, so that's how you do an ACTH stimulation test. And again, I think that using the freezing method helps save us a lot of money and hopefully it helps decrease the cost difference between using cosentropin and the ACTH gel enough that people use the cosentropin. Moving on to another diagnostic that we use sometimes, not all that often. Occasionally, we'll want to measure an endogenous ACTH concentration in a dog. Now, again, we don't use this very often. The reason to use it is if you have a dog with cortisol deficiency, so you do an ACTH stimulation test and they're post-cortisol concentration is less than two. However, they have normal electrolyte concentrations. In these guys, we're not sure whether they have atypical Addison's or they have secondary Addison's due to inadequate production of ACTH from the pituitary gland. So the idea is if we check an endogenous ACTH concentration in an animal that has atypical Addison's, you would expect the ACTH to be really high because there's no negative feedback from cortisol. And in some studies, we found that this is the case. Animals with atypical addisons do tend to have really high ACTH concentrations. Now, the thing about doing an endogenous ACTH is that it has really, really fickle sample handling requirements. ACTH tends to degrade if it's not kept frozen or on preservative. The most common protocol recommended is that you collect the sample for an endogenous ACTH in a frozen plastic purple top. Then you spin it down, and you remove the plasma from the top, and you put it into another frozen tube immediately, and you ship it on dry ice. If you don't ship it on dry ice and just ship it on regular ice, then the sample is probably thawed by the time it gets to the lab, and it generally won't be all that helpful, or it'll be difficult to interpret because some of the ACTH might have degraded. The other way that you can do it, which is the way I think most people are most successful with, is you contact the laboratory that you're going to use prior to collecting the sample. You get a special tube, and that special tube contains a preservative called aprotonin that keeps the ACTH from degrading. And then you follow exactly what the laboratory tells you regarding sample handling, and you collect your sample that way. Generally, if you're going to do an endogenous ACTH concentration, it's ideal that you do it you collect the sample prior to doing an ACTH stimulation test because obviously an ACTH stimulation test has ACTH in it. That said, most of the time you don't know they have Addison's prior to doing that, so why would you go through all the sample handling difficulties in that case? So if not, then I, if you haven't done that yet, which most of us haven't, then I would collect the ACTH concentration about a day after the ACTH has been given if that makes sense, because you don't want cross-reactivity from the synthetic ACTH you injected into the dog. So again, the way to interpret it is if the ACTH concentration is high, then the dog most likely has atypical Addison's. However, if the ACTH concentration is low, then that suggests secondary Addison's due to something wrong in the pituitary, and it might suggest that we need to do some imaging of the brain to figure out what's going on there. Moving on to an upcoming diagnostic that might be used sometime in the future, we're going to talk about the cortisol to ACTH ratio. Now, the concept behind a cortisol to ACTH ratio for the diagnosis of hypoadrenocorticism is, as I've mentioned already, any dog that has Addison should have a really, really low cortisol concentration. And any dog that has Addison, as long as it's not secondary Addison, should have a high ACTH concentration. 
So the reason behind doing a cortisol to ACTH ratio is that if the cortisol is really low and the ACTH is really high, then the ratio should be really low in the end. Therefore, if the ratio is really low, then maybe we could diagnose Addison's without having to do an ACTH stimulation test and using only one blood sample in order to do this or collecting blood once and putting it into two different tubes. Obviously, that would be a lot less expensive than using an ACTH stimulation test. The question is, okay, clinically, is this relevant? So we did a study here in the United States and some other folks did a study in Europe looking at using the cortisol to ACTH ratio. And what we did is we measured this ratio in several groups of dogs. So dogs that are normal, so healthy dogs, dogs that have Addison's, and dogs that are sick but don't have Addison's disease, so dogs that have vomiting due to IBD or whatever kind of illness they had at the time. And what both studies found was that the cortisol to ACTH ratios were much lower in dogs that have hypoadrenocorticism than they are in healthy dogs or in dogs that have non-adrenal illness. What's frustrating, though, is that even though we use the exact same machine and the exact same assays to measure endogenous ACTH and cortisol, we actually came up with different discriminatory ranges. So what this means is that right now we don't have well-defined reference ranges differentiating the cortisol to ACTH ratios in animals with Addison's from dogs that don't have Addison's. And until different reference laboratories develop their own reference ranges, then the cortisol to ACTH ratio is not going to be clinically available. So before we wrap it up, I wanted to talk about one other subject, which is in-house cortisol assays. And I want to talk about this just because I've seen some problems with it. So there are in-house cortisol assays available from a commercial distributor that can be used, obviously, to determine cortisol concentrations in-house. Of course, people like these because get pretty rapid results from them. The problem is that I myself and some other people on the ACBAN listserv have diagnosed Addison's in animals that had falsely increased cortisol concentrations on these in-house assays, but when we sent out the blood to reference laboratories, they came back as consistent with Addison's with less than 2 micrograms per deciliter. Now, my case was a case that came in in the middle of the night. This dog, I want to say it was around 2 in the morning. I was a brand-new graduate and very excited and even loved Addison's back then. So I was like, all right, well, let's do an ACTH simulation test. I ran the test myself, which is probably your first problem there. But I ran the test, and it came back with a post-cortisol concentration of 4 micrograms per deciliter, which, as I said, is not diagnostic of Addison's. Now, Again, I was a young and excited veterinarian, really convinced about Addison's, and I fortunately decided to go ahead and send the blood work to a reference laboratory, and it came back as less than two. There have been other reports where animals had to get referred to internists because they were like, well, we ruled out Addison's, but it looks like Addison's, and they had to get referred where they were later diagnosed. Now, here's the deal, is that these in-house tests have been evaluated by the company that makes them, but no independent studies have been done as far as I know at this point. Now, it's very possible these tests, if done properly and if managed with appropriate quality control, are very accurate. Unfortunately, the accuracy of a test depends on who is running it 
and how good the quality control is. And my guess is that me running a test in the middle of the night probably wasn't the most brilliant thing to do. My technicians probably would have done a better job at it. But again, other people have made this mistake as well. So my take right now is I'm not saying that the in-house cortisol assays aren't accurate if done properly and if proper quality control is followed on them. However, I prefer for my patients to use a reference laboratory because I trust them a little bit better than my own abilities. All right, so now we're coming to the end of this podcast. As a summary, the most common clinical pathologic abnormalities associated with Addison's are hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, and azotemia. And don't forget to consider Addison's disease in your acute renal failure suspects. Obviously, Addison's has a much better prognosis. We do use a baseline cortisol concentration to rule out Addison's, but definitive diagnosis of Addison's requires an ACTH stimulation test at this time. And if you need to differentiate between primary and secondary hypoadrenal cortisism, you can use an endogenous ACTH concentration. Thanks for joining me in this podcast, and be sure to check out the other podcasts on Addison's and the web conference. Thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. We hope that you found the information shared in this session useful. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, please be sure to check out related programs, which you can access from vetfolio.com. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, DECRA, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session and other topics you'd like to hear on future podcasts. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via support at vetfolio.com.